Good evening, all, and welcome to episode seven of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. Don't forget to click like and subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or Amazon Music or iHeartRadio or my YouTube channel. If you like it, smash that little bell, and um, you'll see that there's a new poster here in the office, and I didn't put it in front of the desk by accident. Chariots of Fire, the film represented in that really terrific poster. Uh, it's not the poster that you normally see with regards to this film. I like the way that it sort of breaks down. It won four Academy Awards in a, a very competitive year. A lot of controversy. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark, same year, could have easily won Best Picture. Um, but it's a really good poster. Uh, and it kind of gets more into giving you an idea of the film than the sort of original one sheet, which just features a bunch of guys wearing white running outfits on a beach. And if you know nothing of the movie, that really doesn't give you very much. But it is a true statement that since I first watched that movie, I was seven years old, it was late in 1981, and the movie had just opened in the United States. It had played a little bit in England and elsewhere in Europe. And, you know, in the days when information traveled at a snail's pace, my parents somehow got wind of this movie. I don't know if it was Friends or whether it was television advertisements, because there were a lot of commercials airing which showed the just incredible rave reviews. Uh, from critics across the pond, and also critics here in the United States. Um, Roger Ebert, it was one of the best films that he had seen in at least a decade. He said, Dennis Cunningham of CBS said, you know, you'll literally be standing and screaming and cheering. Um, the critics were rapturous in praise, and there was a ton of Oscar buzz before the film even opened over here. So to set the scene, it's a kind of drizzly Sunday late morning, and it wasn't the kind of day where I would be able to go outside and play ball unless the weather suddenly just magically cleared up. And um, I was in my room. I didn't even know what I was doing in there. I was, you know, I was probably reading or just being upset about something or other, as I often was. And um, mom, little knock on the door. Yeah. Uh, sweetie, um, get yourself together. We're going to the movies. I don't want to go to the movies, Mom. It might clear up outside. It might be able to play ball. Get yourself together. We're going to the movies. Come on. Your father wants to go. There's this movie that he's been talking about, and it sounds interesting. I, we're going. <sighs> Great. Fantastic. Okay. So it's safe to say the first time I heard the words, Chariots of Fire, I was not a happy camper. Didn't sound very interesting. I had heard of the movie Ben-Hur about chariot races. Maybe this was like that. That movie didn't sound particularly interesting either. So whatever this was, and neither of my parents explained, well, it's a kind of a sports movie, and there's athletics and Olympics, and maybe... I don't remember them saying anything about the substance. And the movie theater we went to was not the Sunrise Mall in Massapequa, which leads me to believe that 
Chariots of Fire opened Limited in New York and Long Island. I want to say that we drove all the way to the Green Acres theaters in Valley Stream. Like it was a it was a distance that we drove. We didn't just get in the car. You know, there was the old Pequot Theater right by the Massapequa Diner back then, and um, the Massapequa train station just off where Route 107 crosses Route 27, Sunrise Highway. We went for a drive, and I was just getting angrier and angrier because the weather had improved. Probably could have played ball, could have played tennis, baseball, or we could have played soccer, or kickball, or any number of things. But instead, here I am being dragged by my parents to the movies. So I remember still feeling very resistant as we all sat back in our seats. And, and to be fair, my father was, what was he, 39 at the time. It was as excited as he had been that I could remember up to that point to watch a movie. He was really looking forward to it. My mom really didn't care, but to her credit, in her mind, she was going to you know, take one for the team because it was so rare that my dad, Candy, I really want to see this movie. It looks great. I, I assume a couple of people you know, at the office said, hey, Cone, you ought to check this out. This looks terrific. Everybody's talking about it. I was resistant as the movie opened, although I did think it was curious the way that it began with a bunch of men running on a beach and the scene kind of wrapping up as they hop a fence and end up at what is St. Andrews, the famous golf course. I didn't know what it was, but my tiny little head, my little active mind thought it was an interesting start, but I was still angry. I was mad. And then the early scenes introducing the character of Harold Abrahams and Aubrey Montague, and as much as I enjoyed, okay, well, the costumes are really cool, uh, this is a very nice film to look at. Not used to seeing this kind of kind of thing. There's all of that. I was still wishing that I wasn't there. And then there is an early scene, which when this movie, if you just happen to be watching TV and this film is discussed, there's a scene which is often part of a kind of quick 15 to 20 second highlights package. Like at the Oscars every now and then because Chariots of Fire was a Best Picture Oscar winner. They'll show a little montage if they do a thing that they seem to do this every couple of years where they might show selected montages of Oscar winners. The scene I'm about to talk about is always in this package. The character of Harold Abrahams, who was a real person, I should point out that most of this movie is true. Uh, it's mostly factual. There are certain things that were um, adjusted for dramatic purposes, it happens, but the athletic aspect the true story of the 1924 Olympic Games happened very similar to how this film puts it across. So the character of Harold Abrahams is a track and field star. And we learn right away he is headstrong, he's arrogant, he pretty much is a lady killer. He's Jewish. And he's not an observant Jew, should be pointed out. But he uses his religion, in his own words, as a weapon against those who would pull against him because he's Jewish. It's not really the way you're supposed to do it, but he's somebody who, is, who comes from wealth, 
and has had a pretty comfortable existence up until the point that he starts at, at Cambridge College. And he is about to take part in a very unusual athletic contest where he is going to do something called the Trinity Court Dash. He is going to attempt to sprint from one area on this big quad, when this is like a centuries old courtyard, from one area on the quad to another before hundreds of years old, you know, now it would be an extra hundred year, years old from when this was supposed to take place, uh, this kind of Liberty Bell sort of thing. And nobody has ever ran from the starting point to this finish point in the time it takes the bell to ring a dozen times. So he's ready to try, and we haven't seen him run. We don't really know. And then another character who ends up being a very important character, Andrew Lindsay, who is royalty, like literally royalty, comes to join him. And the two guys knew each other, but neither knew that the other was a track and field star. Because when this takes place, like 1920-ish, 21, uh, it's not like they could have followed each other on Instagram. Or, oh, I've seen this guy on Twitter. I've seen this guy on Facebook. They were unlikely to even see him. They would have to read a, a news account. And honestly, college athletes not really getting that much press with the Babe Ruths of the world at the time. So each guy runs this dash. And Lindsay just misses. He just misses getting there. Abrahams makes it. And he's the first person to do it in, I don't remember how many centuries that they mentioned in the film. There is something about the energy, the, the fire in that scene took me by surprise. I was expecting, yes, it was a period piece, and it was, as I say, very nice to look at. It was beautifully shot, and for a child who was interested in visual things, I was impressed, but I was expecting something that now I would call stately, austere, dull. And the energy in this scene stunned me. And whatever inhibitions, whatever little bits of anger I may have still had of my parents dragging me to this movie against my will Ooh. was gone. And I was with the film from that point until the lights came up. And the movie is interesting for a number of reasons, subject matter of course, but it's also interesting in the way that it plays with time. Now it's not a tricky narrative that is jumping back and forth. I don't mean it like that, but we don't realize the movie opens in what's just about present day at a funeral. Then it flashes back, and at the very end, it returns to the funeral. And I remember you seeing all of these incredible athletic achievements and, and striving to succeed, and the two main characters, one of whom is, as I mentioned, Harold Abrahams, the other is uh, a Scottish missionary, an impossibly gifted athlete named Eric Little. And he also runs for religion, but he runs for a completely different reason. He runs not to get back at people who would dismiss him because of his religion. He runs to spread the word of God. So both guys are doing that, but in an entirely different way. One is taking it, in his opinion, taking the positive approach, Eric Little, and the other is just using it as a club to metaphorically hit people over the head who would look down upon him. 
So these, we follow these two men, and it's an unusual telling of a story in that you normally don't have two protagonists. And the way the filmmakers, Hugh Hudson, the director, did a tremendous job, he had each guy convinced that he was the star. So when you're shooting a movie where there's more than one crew working at, at a time, as in the case of this one, you can tell the person you're working with whatever you want. And both, and it's unfortunate they're both gone, Ben Cross, incredible actor, and I've argued before that his performance in this film is one of cinema's great unsung performances. To me, it's, it's absolutely criminal that he wasn't nominated for Best Actor. That's how strong he is. And Eric Little is played by uh, Ian Charleston, who unfortunately died of AIDS. He was very young. He died in the late 1980s. And both guys sell it. They don't necessarily look like super athletes, but they look the part and they play it. And the first time in the movie that these two guys meet, which is before, not spoiling anything, an athletic competition well before the 1924 Olympics, the tension in the scene is real in the world of the movie because each guy is a little nervous because they've read and heard so much about the other and they're going to finally be facing off in the 100 meter dash. But each actor thought he was the star of the movie. And that adds to the tension of the scene. It doesn't mean anything if you don't know what I just told you, but it definitely, there's an edge to the way that each guy plays the scene. And you follow the two of them through the trials and trying to get ready for the Olympics. And then each man makes the British team, even though Little is a Scot, they all run under the British flag. So when you realize, hey, wait a minute, these guys are rivals. They could be bitter rivals, but they're running for the same flag. They're on the same team here. And you start wondering, how is that going to play out? So I was enthralled by everything in this movie. The music, there's a ton of Gilbert and Sullivan, the Mikado. I think the Mikado is one of the most beautiful you know, long pieces of music ever written. It was an operetta by Gilbert and Sullivan. And the Abrahams, in real life, Harold Abrahams, sang. And so we see him taking part in these operettas while there's montages of athletic achievements in the background. And the movie builds towards the 1924 Olympic Games. And as a young kid, seven years old, the movie doesn't exactly paint the Americans as villains, but they are in the way. And we are not rooting for the Americans. And they were, again, the filmmakers were very wise to cast, at the time, two rising, you know, Hollywood stars, Dennis Christopher, whose career kind of petered out, um, and uh, Brad Davis, who was a fantastic actor. And he had, he had been in uh, Midnight Express in 1978, the story of Massapequa native Billy Hayes, who was uh, more or less stuck in Turkey for six years by trying to smuggle hash uh, back to the United States and failed and ended up in a brutal Turkish prison. So you had those two guys representing Americans. And you don't really get too much out of the Dennis Christopher character, who was a 1920 um, Olympic gold medalist in the 100 meter, Charles Paddock. But you do get to know Brad Davis's character. And because Brad Davis was a name in Hollywood, 
Oscar-nominated actor for Midnight Express. His true life character, Jackson Schultz, you get a good sense of him. And he almost redeems the entire American squad because there are a couple of, you get the idea that some of the Americans are just like, they're just dicks, they're not nice. But he has scenes with Ian Charleston as Eric Little, which are highlights. They're some of the best moments in the film, the interaction between the two of them. And it, it takes you by surprise. You're not expecting an American, American who could be in direct competition to go out of his way to back this guy when he's in trouble and to let him know, you actually have my support. And he's literally rooting for the guy against the American team. And those are some of the best scenes in the movie. But the film is about sacrifice. It's about wanting to win for different reasons. And I remember, again, I'm not going to spoil it. Yes, you could look at the, uh, the history books. But the movie is streaming free on YouTube, and it's available on a lot of streamers. It is a polarizing movie. I can tell you this, my father, this was in his top three or four favorite movies of all time. My aunt, I believe it would be in her top five. My sister, I believe it's in her top ten. So the Cohen clan all love this movie. And my mom was even a, is even a fan. But I know plenty of people that whenever I, we would talk about it, say, Again, with Chariots of Fire, I remember getting in arguments at NYU with, with fellow film students saying, bro, the fucking movie's so boring. Oh, great musical score by Vangelis. You've definitely, I shouldn't say that, you probably have heard the main theme at some point because you might hear it in a supermarket, you might hear it in a mall. The main theme is instantly recognizable to a lot of people who are not familiar with the film. It's, oh, that's, you know, sometimes you see in pop culture where you'll, You'll see an image or something, and you'll say, oh, I didn't realize it was from this. You might have an aha moment with this movie when you hear the music. It's very distinctive. It was a synthesizer score. Evangelis was a brilliant, extraordinary um, composer of music, and film music in particular. It's the only time in my life that it felt as if I was having an out-of-body experience. At a certain point in the first half hour of the movie, I stopped feeling as if I was in a movie theater watching a movie, and it started to feel as if I was an active participant, and I forgot that I was in a theater. That is how deeply this movie got to me. And when the film ended and the lights came up, I mean, I was, I was crying, even though nothing, uh, spoiler alert, nothing that terribly sad happens. But I was, I was crying. Seven-year-old me was crying. Uh, the movie had, it had gotten to me so in the marrow, as they say. And the lights came up, and my first thought was, I want to see it again. And I don't remember any time in the net, you know, the later uh, 42 years, I don't remember having that reaction when the lights came up, that I want to watch this movie again right now. Or as my dad used to joke and say, not later, now. So the film, as I say, ended up winning four Academy Awards. And Ben Cross, who, as I say, played Harold Abrahams and is just extraordinary in the role, uh, he ended up having a, a terrific career, and you've probably seen him in, like in uh, the Star Trek reboot, the, the Chris Pine, uh, Zachary Quinto, sorry, 
the Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Star Trek. Um, he plays Spock's father. He plays Sarek, and he's so good in that role because you know Ben Cross with those kind of angular features. He really sells that part. He was terrific in that. Um, he also had a big role. He's the nominal villain in a uh, mid-90s kind of action romance, First Night, uh, with Sean Connery as King Arthur and Richard Gere as Lancelot. And um, it's a pretty solid movie. Uh, it's not great, but Ben Cross is what you remember about the film as this kind of renegade knight who's just had it up to here with King Arthur. You know, yeah, Camelot goes screw off, like that kind of thing. And unfortunately, Ben Cross passed a little over three years ago. Um, he wasn't really, he was in his early 70s. It's just very unfortunate. But through the years, and some of the other movies which I rank in my kind of top, you know, the sort of mythical top 10. Because if, if you ask me to name my top 10, it's not going to be the same top 10, because there are going to be some movies that I happen to be thinking of. But Chariots of Fire, I always named as my favorite movie. And as time went on, and I watched different films that got to me, The Natural with Robert Redford. I had read the book, and the movie basically flips the book on its head, but the, I, I love the movie. The movie and the book are totally different, despite not being that different. They're completely different in terms of the takeaway. Uh, that's up there in my top 10. Blue Velvet, definitely in my top 10. Rounders is close. Star Wars Episode Four, for sure. Got to have Pulp Fiction somewhere in there. And Dirty Harry in there somewhere. But at no time, and there's another movie I won't mention now. There's one more poster on its way. It's actually more of a, like a display kind of thing. Uh, that, that is also in my top ten, but I'm not going to name that movie right now. There'll be an episode on that one by itself. I'll let you figure out. You, most of you all know. A few of you will figure out what I'm talking about. But with all of the great movies that I have seen, that I have been fortunate enough, New York University Film School, movies I was exposed to that the average person, back then especially, because now it's easy with streaming, but I was able to watch and I was... Um, fortunate enough to see movies that there was really no other way that I could have other than the fact that I was in this program and there were movies that we were screening which were just not readily available that there were very few prints and NYU had a print because of a professor by the name of William K. Everson who saved hundreds of films which would have otherwise been lost but again that's a whole other podcast that might be more than one but with all the films I saw with all the study with all the reading I've done, with all the writing I've done, no film has supplanted Chariots of Fire as my favorite movie of all time. And I have seen that film from start to finish more than any other movie, and I could watch it every day and not get tired of it. It's that good to me. And it's so beautifully shot, and I keep coming back to that, how well they nailed the costumes. You know, and a movie, to give you perspective, Titanic was released 16 years after Chariots of Fire. The period details are close enough where you could, you could do a comparison and a contrast as to how they set, how they set these things. Because um, 
1912, 1920 to 1924. They did such a good job, in Titanic for sure, but in Chariots, to get the time period. And the movie thus is timeless because you don't have any weird stuff like in certain movies where uh, it's supposed to be 1920 and characters have hairstyles that didn't exist or you know silly stuff or in Braveheart where there's a guy wearing a watch that what they had um, they had brightlings in it no the period details this sweep some of the um, uh, the landscape and panoramic shots of for example the Scottish countryside you know Mel Gibson on his his director's uh, commentary for Braveheart he kind of joked about it a little bit but in Chariots of Fire there are gorgeous shots of the Scottish countryside and the the way that the characters deliver their lines with such conviction it's almost hard to explain but there are movies where you feel actors performing and it takes you out of the fiction but in this movie every performance rings true nobody's playing to the camera nobody is you know wink wink nudge nudge this is a big star everybody was just giving giving their all um, in, in service of a story that they really that they really all believed in so that's going to bring episode seven of confessions of a not so dangerous mind to a conclusion of course i'm i'm glad that i might have had to do a retake if i had knocked over the poster that would have really been something but if you like the content, as I say, don't forget to like, subscribe, hit whatever buttons are available to you on whatever platform. And um, I'll be back again real soon. And if you have not seen Chariots of Fire, I urge you to watch it. And if you don't like it, you can like me up on social media. I'm very confident that most people, especially the way that it's been described to them, will understand it's a little different. You know, it's not a Michael Bay action film. Uh, it's not a fast-paced thriller. It is a story of real people, as the late great film critic Roger Ebert said, who were trying to win when working hard sometimes was good enough. So take care, and uh, I'll see you all again real soon.